0: Looking forward to getting to heaven to being able to sing like you all. <laughs> all I can do is sit over there and do my best impression of a strangling cat. So I, uh, I get a chance to listen to Courtney and, and Greg and just think, man, what a, what, a, what a ministry it is to be able to speak truth in people's lives. And so thank you, Greg, and all of you that help and lead um, in singing and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Thank you for those. And uh, thank you for Mark for uh, hitting record. Um, I don't want to get in trouble from Greg again for not giving appreciation for that. So I hope you have a Bible with you this morning. You have something you can open up and you can turn on. I want to invite for you to join me in Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. Hopefully when you came in, you got a uh, bulletin when you came in. There's always those there on the back tables and there's going to be some notes if you want to follow along on the back um, of that if you want to uh, just as we track through the Word of God together. I am I'm so grateful that you are here and I know that for some of you, you are here to recognize and honor the mothers in your lives and we are just so grateful as a church that you are here this morning to celebrate with us. And as you are coming here this morning, it might be the habit of some of you to expect that the, uh, the whole service is going to be something about a Mother's Day sermon and sometimes that has its place but then sometimes as a church we're just walking through a piece of scripture and when as a church you know we just walk through verse by verse on a Sunday morning and so this morning it's not really going to lend itself to a, a beautiful Mother's Day message. But it's where we're at in the text, and it's where we're walking through. And so in no way do I want to take away from the honor or the respect due to so many mothers in this room. But at the same time, when we come together as a people of God, we are studying God's Word Together and so here this morning in Second Peter chapter two, it's just continuation of where we left off after last Sunday. We've been walking through this letter of Second Peter, First Peter we walked through several months ago, and now we are here in Second Peter. And as I have said before, but sometimes we forget um, from one week to another. When you think about the letter or the book of Second Peter, it's really broken up in three sections. Chapter one as Peter is reminding that early church who they are in Christ, reminding them of their identity, reminding of what Christ has done in them. And then you get to chapter 2, and chapter 2 talks about the dangers, talks about the threats that the church is facing not just in that day, but I believe and still in this day here. And then chapter three really deals around with the future and the hope that that church can have and that because God is in control and because Jesus is alive, the church has something to look forward to. Now, we're gonna get to that in the coming weeks in chapter three, but right now we are in chapter two. And what we've been seeing so far in chapter two is Peter reminds them. Peter reminds that early church that amongst them, Not only amongst them, but around them, there is a danger, there is a threat. In First Peter chapter two and verse one, he says, "But false prophets also arose among, also arose among the people, just as there would be false teachers among you." So he, he reminds them of this danger, of this threat, and then there, um, as the latter part of the chapter, he's going to talk about where, what's going to happen to them, the influence they have in their lives. So we are right in the middle of this because what he is he's reminding us is he's telling us, exposing to us, teaching us about these dangers, these these false teachers, these false prophets around us. We're going to dive into that a little bit more this morning, but let me just start off by kind of setting the stage like this. The house we live, we have a a small pond and you go out to that small pond and we have a little flat bottom John boat that is sitting out there in the in the pond and for a while it had quite a bit of holes in it and so it really wasn't fit to uh, to float but we got a lot of that fixed and so we got that taken care of and of course my 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 sweet precious boys Jaylene and I sweet precious boys the first thing they want to do is they say okay daddy can we get in there and can we boat around and I said well sure you can get in there and boat around and they get out there and they're and they're getting the, uh, getting the idea of what it's like to try to paddle I mean the, the motorized thing just uh, isn't fit, working for us and so they get out there and they paddle Around and then come back and then the question is posed. They said, well, that's, can we still take the boat out and goof off even when you're not here? I said, no. And they said, well, why not? And I said, because what happens if you fall in the water and you drown? <laughs> There's a lot of things that can happen out in the middle of a pond, a lot of things that can take place that if I'm not there, your mother is not there, a lot of things can go bad really fast. And if you've ever heard the story, one boy is a boy, two boys is half a boy, and three boys is no boys at all. So I know, I know for certain, (laughs) if it is going to go wrong, it will go wrong. And so I look at these young men and I said, no. You may not take the belt out if there is not an adult, mature person present. And they made this statement to me. They said, Dad, we don't know what's the big deal. Well, as a parent, you can understand. And as a parent, you can see it. Well, in many ways, that's where I think Peter is coming into this story this morning. As Peter is writing to the other church, and he's writing to them about the danger of the false prophets. He's talking about the danger of the false teachers around him. He's talking about the danger of the heretical teachings that are going on around him. He might imagine that a church is sitting looking at him and going, Peter, what's the big deal? Peter, we don't know why you're getting all worked up. Peter, we don't understand why you're getting all excited about this. And Peter wants to show them, and Peter wants to teach them that this is a big deal. And I realize that some of you this morning are like, whatever, he's already lost this. And I'm just going to hopefully, hopefully I've got you convinced by the time that we are through at 2 o'clock this afternoon that this is a big deal. And what I hope that you'll see with me this morning is that The big deal is that the false teachers and the false prophets among us today are not just on the television. They are not just on the radio. They are not just on your computer screen. They are not just in some type of heretical garbage book sold on the bookshelves in your bookstore. False teaching and false prophet is not only in this community, but maybe even unintentionally in the church today. And I hope you'll see this with me. So Peter's talking about this false teaching and he's gonna lay it out, as I've kind of divided, he's gonna lay out four symptoms. You think about a symptom being a clue, a symptom being something that points to a problem. So you go to the doctor and you have some type of a ailment, some type of a condition, they ask, what are your symptoms? And so this is what Peter is doing to triage, to, to examine exactly what is going on in the life of the church and the life of the community around the church that would, that would point them to these false teachers, as he says back up in verse one, false teachers among you. So starting there in verse 10 of 2 Peter chapter 2, I want to read into our hearing as you'll follow along in your copy of God's word. Let me read down through verse 16 and then we're going to step back up and with the context, with all of the passage in view. We're going to step back up and look at these symptoms that Peter gives us that point to the false teachers and the false prophets around us. He says there in verse 10, as I'm going to pick it up there in the middle of the verse. He says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage, as the wage for the wrongdoing, they, they count it as pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes. Reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness." I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. As you read along with me, as I read aloud, you might say, well, that's just kind of a strange place to start and a strange place to end. But as I told you in the past weeks, it's hard to really take this chapter and try to really start at a beginning or end at an ending. You really just have to get as much as you can because a lot of times they will tell us that the mind can only endure what the seat can handle. And so really we have a limited scope amount of, a, of attention or time that people are willing to give as we're studying. So I've tried to break this up in some bite-sized pieces that as we gather on a Sunday morning, we can look at and then we can come back to the next week and it ties all in. So right here in this passage, the first few verses here in chapter 2, he talked about the reality of the presence of the false teachers. Then he comes back in verse 4 through verse 10, he talks about the fact that God knows that these false teachers are here. It's not that it's taking God by surprise. God knows that it's happening. Don't lose heart. Don't lose your mind. God knows and God has it under control. Then as we'll see in the next week to come, verse 17 all the way down through uh, verse uh, 22, he's going to talk about the impact. In the future, they have. But this morning, he's gonna talk about how to identify the false teachers. How to to identify the false prophets among us. He gives us four symptoms. The first one is this profane speech. Profane speech. Now, what do I mean by profane speech? Well, profane, if you look up the dictionary definition of profane, profane is something that is ungodly. Profane is something that is not in step with the holiness of God. Profane to be something that would be out of place unholy, unrighteous. Anything that goes against God is profane. So you, he, what he says is he's identifying them as having a profane speech. Where do I get that from? Look at verse 10. He says they are bold and they are willful. So he identifies their attitude and their behavior and their motivation. He says they are bold and willful. And notice again, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. And commentators are kind of split on what this glorious ones means. Are they talking about God? Is it talking about the Trinitarian picture, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Is he talking about the angelic beings that you see referred to in other places in the Scripture? Commentators are kind of split on what exactly he's talking about, but the emphasis is still a unified understanding that what he is saying, what Peter is saying, is that you have these individuals and they are blaspheming. They are speaking against God. They are insulting, insulting the nature of God. They are slandering the character of God. And they are saying, things that even angels are scared to say and we are living in a context and in a society today that we have people that are willing to say things that even the disciples and the apostles and the people that have come before us were even too scared to say And we are living in a time and we're living in a culture that you see this profane speech. Now, I'm not just talking about some of the crude things. I'm talking about when people start saying, well, God wouldn't do this and God did do that when God didn't say that and God didn't do that. See, we're living in a day and age that people are making all kinds of assumptions on behalf of God when God never said. And so they will come and they will say, well, this is what I believe and this is what I hold to be true. And may I tell you as lovingly as possible, it doesn't matter what you believe and what you hold to be true. What matters is what does God's word say. So if God's word was to say the sky is blue, it doesn't matter what color you think it is. God said it's blue, so it's blue. And we're living in a day and age that everybody wants to come up with their own truth. Everybody wants to come up with their own idea what is right and wrong. And you have a situation where people are profaning through their speech, they are profaning the holiness and the righteousness of God. Think about it like this. Once upon a time in my life, before I was trying to be who I'm being today, I had a different vocabulary. There were a lot more words that I would say that Usually had about four letters, and that's all it consisted of. And a lot more colorful vocabulary, a lot more crude vocabulary, and a vocabulary that I knew that I would say amongst my peers or say amongst the people that I work with, but I would not dare say in front of mama. And so I'd get to the point, you know, well, you probably have never been there. I'll just tell you where I've been. So I'd get to the point that all of a sudden you'd show up at mama's house and you'd find yourself, as you're thinking about what you're getting ready to say, having to filter. Oh, I can't say this. I can't say this. I can't say this. Because all the things that I say at work, I can't always say the, speak to some way at work the way that I do at my parents' house. Some of you all get like that at church. <laughs> some of you come in and I can see it in your faces. You're getting ready to say something and it's like, bloop, and then sometimes you say it and then you're trying to reach to grab it to take it back and it's, it's too late. It's already, it's already gone. And once upon a time, we as a culture had a filter in what we said out loud about God. And now, as he's talking about it, he says there in verse 10, they are bold and they are willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. What Peter is reminding them there is that you have these false teachers, these pro- false prophets, and they are saying things that the Bible says is not true. And not only are they saying it, but they're shouting at the props and saying, Oh, listen to me, I know. And because God's people are too ignorant, and because God's people are too asleep, and because God's people are not paying attention, they do not say that. Is wrong. And he says one symptom that you will know them is from their profane speech. Then he gives another symptom. He talks about their arrogant thoughts. Their arrogant thoughts. If If you continue on there in verse 12 of the text, notice what he says. He says, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct... He's referring to this idea of their behavior. He's referring to this idea of their actions. He's referring to how they behave in public. And he says, they're like irrational animals, creature of Instinct. What is he talking about? He is talking about the way they behave and the way they act. It's like they're going through their lives and they are just sitting there thinking, you know what? I know the answers. I know what is true for me. I know what is best for me. I know what is my truth. I know what I believe. I know how I believe it. And that is enough for me. It doesn't matter what God's word says. It doesn't matter what God is doing. We have so calloused our hearts that we have talked ourselves into believing a narrative and a picture of God that matches what we want. And unfortunately, we're living in a day in a society now that you can find a church that will pander and pamper to your own desires. You can find a book. You can find an author. You can find a, you can find a group on Facebook. If you want someone to confirm, to, to affirm, and to conform or confirm your choices you don't have to look very far because there is someone out there. So what Peter is saying here in this text he's talking about these false teachers, he's talking about these false prophets and he said they act like irrational animals, they act like creatures of instinct. In other words what he's saying is you see the she notes, they had so much ignorance about what God's word said but then they coupled it with pride. And when you take ignorance and you take pride the result is arrogance and they got arrogant in their lifestyles they got arrogant in their behaviors they got arrogant in their assumed understanding of what was right and wrong wrong what was true and what wasn't true and when they became arrogant in their thinking and they became arrogant in their lives it led them to sin that's simply at the root base of it that's what sin is sin is me thinking that i know better than god sin is me saying i know what god says but I'm going to do what I want. That is sin. That is ultimately what sin is. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter three in the garden and you had the tree with the fruit and God said, don't touch the tree. You get Adam and Eve and they're sitting there in the tree and then Satan says to the woman, oh, you know what? You should eat the fruit. And so at some point Eve decided to say, you know what? What I think is more important than what God thinks. What I want is more important than what God wants. Where I'm going is more important than where God wants me to go. And it started with ignorance because they didn't understand the full ramifications of the sin. It started with pride, thinking that they could know more than God knows. It led to arrogance, which arrogance led to sin. So Peter is saying, this is the danger. This is the problem, is they have these arrogant thoughts. They have so codified. They have so callous themselves. They are running around almost doing things without thinking, but they're animals that are acting like they're just doing this by instinct. The problem is, the problem is, what he says is what happens. They're born to be caught and destroyed. blaspheming about manners of which they're ignorant and will be destroyed for their destruction. He says you have these arrogant people. And these arrogant people are running around almost as if they don't even think about it. It doesn't even register. It doesn't even, it doesn't even make a difference. And their homes and their lives are just running around with arrogant thoughts, profane speech, bleeding people astray i think back to genesis 11 and chapter 4 if you go back and look at the passage you see this building of the tower of babel and the whole nature was, is the group of people got together and said, let us let us build this, and let us make this, and let us do this. That way we can get the glory, we can get the praise, we can get the recognition. And in chapter 11 and verse 4, it comes together. There's a phrase there in the Bible that says, let us make a name for ourselves. Their whole motivation was is not to bring glory to God, not to point other people to God, not to submit themselves to God. Their whole point was, I want the, I want the glory, I want the attention, I want all the credit. which is a lot of the way that the social media today is engineered. The likes, the repost, the retweets, the followers. I've got to make something that lands on the For You page. I've got to put a picture that gets the right swipes instead of the left swipes. I've got to do all these things to get the approval and the accommodations and the applause of people around me. And at the root of it is an arrogant thought thinking that we can be our gods that we can be gods to ourselves. And so Peter says, not only do they have profane speech, but they have arrogant thoughts. Not only do they have arrogant thoughts, but then as he continues on, they have shameless behavior. Now there in the bulletin, if you follow along, it's a typo. It's my fault. It's not Donna's fault. It's my fault. I put it in there. I'm sorry. There's not supposed to be a hyphen or a break or anything else. You just write on through that. It's the idea that they have shameless thoughts. Where do I get that from? Well, continuing as we follow along down in the text, notice in verse 13, notice how it says, it's about the mid part of verse 13, it says, "They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime." Now that's an interesting idea. That's an interesting phrase. So what is Peter trying to say? Peter is recognizing that there are these people out there that are pursuing after sinful lifestyles. They are pursuing after behaviors, actions, and conducts, speech, thoughts, everything that they know goes against God's word. They're doing all this, but no longer are they doing that in secret. No longer are they doing that in the dark. No longer are they doing that away from the eyes of the people that matter. Now it says they take pleasure. Not that they are embarrassed. Not that they are afraid, not that they are ashamed. They take pleasure, it says in the text. They take pleasure to revel in the daytime. And I put there in your notes, they celebrate sin. They celebrate sin. I don't want to be the pot con the kettle black. And I don't want to be the person throwing rocks when I live in a glass house. I don't want to be the person that comes across as being judgmental. I don't want to be the person coming across and being hypocritical saying, it's not okay for you to do that, but it's okay for me to do just something else or or, your sin is worse than my sin or my sin is better than your sin. And no way do I want you to hear me come across as to say that you're wrong and I'm right, even though both of us are sinners saved by grace or that you're wrong and I'm right because I'm a Christian and you weren't. But there is something ungodly and unholy when we celebrate sin. And nowhere in scripture are we commanded. Nowhere in scripture are we modeled. Nowhere in scripture are we encouraged to celebrate sin. He says that there is shameful behavior. Look in verse 3. He says they counted pleasure to revel in the daytime. What, so what, what does that mean? They are blots and they are blimbering. just reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So this idea that you have people among you that are sharing meals, that are sitting down, and they're having fellowship, they're in friendship, they're part of your workplace, part of your workplace environment, they are part of your family get-togethers. You have these people that are around you, but when they come around you, they are reveling in their deception, they're reveling in their lifestyles, they're saying, I want to celebrate, and then you're wrong if you don't celebrate with me. And that's a pressure right now that's going on in our schools, parents. That our children are expected to celebrate and affirm and support sinful behavior in the words and the eyes of God. And it's not a matter of the church being judgmental. It's not a matter of the pastor being hypocritical. It's saying God's word said it's a sin. And yet we have a school system that is saying we expect you, we demand you, and we will, per- we will, uh, we will oppose you if you do not celebrate sin. So he says there in the text, what is it doing? Not only do they have this profane speech, it's arrogant thoughts, they have shameless behavior. What are they doing? They have these eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sins. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. And then he says it in the emphatic at the end of verse 14. He says, accursed children. This is how the spirit, inspiring the pen of Peter, describes these people. Cursed. Not only do they celebrate sin, but they seek the feeble to follow them. Where do I get that from? We looked there at the part of verse 14, it says they entice unsteady souls. So there's a spiral effect, and some people will describe it in a different way, but there's a spiral effect happening in our community and happening in our society. We have churches that are either too lazy or too... Uh, They're not convicted enough to stand for the truth. They're not convicted enough to stand for what God's word says. So you have lazy churches out there, or maybe a a more correct way to say, you have sleepy churches out there, and these sleepy churches are producing weak Christians, confused Christians, or maybe even false Christians. They're producing these out there, and then you have all of this sin. You have these forces, these demonic forces that are out there, these spiritual words, these spiritual warfare that is going out there, and you have those that are opposed to Christianity, those that are opposed to the church, those that are everything that is good and righteous and holy and they are coming and they are praying on these people it says they are enticing the unsteady souls and then those unsteady souls then follow after them and say well you know what if they say i've got to believe it and the sleepy church is not saying anything about it and the next thing you know we start having a cycle where you have fewer christians weaker christians fewer christians weaker christians Well, Spence, what's the answer? The answer is for the people of God to say, we are going to proclaim the word of God, whether it's popular or not. We are going to live the word of God, whether it is popular or not. We are going to stand for the word of God because we don't have a better word to stand for. He says they are shameless in their behavior. They are walking around saying, I want to be as flamboyant with my sin as possible. And how dare you call me into question? And now we have that. Now we have this going on all around us where people are in your face. I dare you to say something. I dare you to tell me I'm wrong. I dare you to confront me about this. You have no right to tell me what I feel in here. And you're absolutely right. I have no right to tell you what you feel in here, but you know what I can tell you? I can tell you what I read in here. The fourth one, they have deceptive pursuits. They have deceptive pursuits. Let me race to pull all this together because of our time is short this morning. So listen to verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now we're going to come back to the first part of verse 15, but some of you may go, what in the world is this, what, what is this picture of Balaam? What in the world is he talking about here? So let me do my best attempt to try to explain what he's referring to here when it comes to Balaam. Now Balaam is a reference all the way back to Numbers chapter 22. As the people of Israel being led by Moses, they're coming out of Egypt and they're heading into the promised land. They are coming in and they come to the land of Midian. And the Midianites are led by a man by the name of Balak. And Balak sees all these Israelites coming and he knows that they are a threat to his prosperity. They know that he's a threat to his security. They know that he is a threat to their way of life. He knows that they're living in land that God had given to them. So he knows it's not very long before I get my eviction notice and I'm out. So what Balak does is Balak says, let's go down to Peor and let's hire this guy named Balaam. This guy named Balaam was a bit of an oracle. He was a bit of a a somebody that foretold. He he, He was assumed to have some type of special revelation from God. So they send, this is Numbers chapter 22, they send to Balaam and they say, we want you to come up. And if you go back to the English translation of it, sometimes it'd be confusing because it goes to God and God, sometimes we get the impression that God said, okay. The, the, the translation from Hebrew into English gets a little clicky. But what happens eventually is that, even though God was saying, I don't want you to go and curse the Israelites, which is what Balaam was trying to do, come curse them, try to put a pox put a on them, if you will, Balaam decides, I'm going to go do it. And the story is that Balaam is riding his donkey. Finally, the donkey lays down. You know the story in Numbers chapter 22. There's a whole episode there where the donkey, God opens the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey speaks. He says, Balaam, what are you doing? Well, Balaam continues on in, verse, in Numbers chapter 23 all the way down through chapter 24. He pronounces four oracles. But instead of cursing the people of Israel, he blesses the people of Israel. And there's this whole question about then what was going on? Was Balaam in the will of God or was he not in the will of God? What is going on there? And, and you might have heard people before try to have different opinions on whether Balaam was doing what God wanted him to or not. The problem is when you lead further on in scripture and you find further about what was going on in the life of Balaam. You may write this down in your, in your margin or write this down in your notes, Joshua chapter 13. In Joshua chapter 13 and verse 22, the Bible tells us about when they came in to conquer the promised land, that the people actually killed Balaam. And they said they killed Balaam because he was practicing divination. He was considered to be one of those that was doing witchcraft, one of those that was doing the, the dark arts, one of those that were trying to conjure up tarot cards, Ouija boards, Holy Spirits, uh, uh, crystal balls, all of these things that he was one of. He was one of the the people that were on the other side. Then you also think about a a passage like in Jude, and it talks about the work of Balaam and the fate of Balaam. But what is even more telling is in Revelation chapter 2 and in verse 14, as Jesus is writing to one of the angels in the seven churches, he talks about and explains at the heart what was Balaam's folly. It says in Revelation 2 and verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have someone, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Okay, so what's wrong with that? Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so, they may, so, that, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. Now, what am I getting at, preacher? What I'm getting at is, is what Balaam decided to do, even though he had came in Numbers chapter 23 and chapters 24, and he pronounced a blessing upon the people of Israel. Because he knew that he could be paid handsomely from Balak and because he knew he could make money as a consultant, if you will, he came back around and according to the scripture, he then said to Balak, you know what, Balak, and I'm just paraphrasing here, this is, the, this is the supposition suspense. He went back to Balak and said, Balak, you know what, you don't need to go in there and just defeat them militarily. You don't need to go in there and you don't need to beat them as far as killing them or removing them from your property. You don't need to go in there and destroy the people. You know how you beat them? You neutralize them. You get them to practice idolatry with your gods. You get them to intermarry with your families. You get them to do trade and to step away from the distinctives that made them the people of God. You get them to abandon all of the things that God had taught them and told them to do, you get them to live like you and you no longer have a problem with the Jewish nation because now everybody is living the same, just like you. So the folly of Balaam, as you go back there to 2 Peter, the folly of Balaam, when it says they have gone astray, they have followed the way of Balaam. The way of Balaam was not coming out outright to say God is not real. The way of Balaam is not to come out right and now and say the church is not true or the Bible is not right. It's just simply saying, you know what? Don't listen to the church. Don't listen to your Bible. Let me just tell you what I think. And let's just follow our own way. And instead of trying to outright go against the church and to destroy the church, we're just simply saying we will just make the church irrelevant. We will spiritually castrate the church. And that's where we're at in many ways today is that we have people that are, that are pursuing deceptive If you go back there in verse 15, notice it says, let's get back to that. It says in verse 15, forsaking the right way. In other words, it says there in your notes, they know the truth. They know right from wrong. They know what God's word says. They know what they should do. They know what God expects of their lives. They know the truth. But the reality is, and some of you are going to push back on this and say, I don't like that idea. But this is the truth. They love Satan more than God. At the end of the day, they love Satan. More than God. Well, Spence, how can you say that? Because the Bible tells us that either you're living for God or you're living for the God of this world. The prince of the, this world, the prince of this world, the God of this world is Satan. Either you're living for Satan or you're living for God. Well, I, I just don't, I think that's a little bit strong, Spence. I, I think that's a little bit much. Of course, of course that's supposed to be how our response is. Because we don't want to be confronted. We don't want to be convicted with the nature of our sin. And the reality of our sin is that it either, it either leads us to God or it leads us away from God. And the same way with our lives. Every single one of us here this morning, you're producing fruit. And your fruit either points to God or it points to Satan. So what Balaam is doing is Balaam is coming in and he's trying to tell them through Balak and against the Israelites, he's saying, you know what? You just deceive them, you pursue them, you direct them away from God and they will pursue the things of this world and you don't have to about fighting them anymore because they're living and doing just like what you're doing. And so he says back there in verse 15, forsaking the right way. What have they done? They pursued after the teachings of Balaam and their deceptive truths All around us. There's half truths, there's short truths, there's small truths. My children get so tired of being in the vehicle and riding down the road and we'll be listening to something and I'll pause it and try to explain to them and and show them and, and, and try to help them think through and help them understand what they are hearing. So just the other day we were going down the road and uh, and some commentator was talking about this disinformation board that the federal government has has come out with and this idea, this disinformation, this commentator of course they've gone back to the ministry of truth and all all the back and forth political arguments that have come about. But at the end of the day I stopped it and I said but boys at the end of the day they're really arguing about what is truth. Who determines what is truth? Because This party over here says this is true. This party over here says this is true. This preacher over here says this is true. This preacher over there says this is true. This church over here says this is true. This church over here says this is true. You and I are sitting in this room and one of us says this is true and the other one says something else is true and we have all of this conflict of what is true. And the tendency is is that we just say, well, you know what, you can have your truth and I'm gonna have my truth. The problem is, is that there's only one truth. There is only one truth. Truth. You can have different opinions, you can have different ideas, you can have different false understandings, you can have different positions philosophically. There is only one truth. Why do I say that? Because when I think in this world, if this is Scotch tape and this is an ink pen, they cannot be the same thing. And if I say this is an ink pen, and I say this is an ink pen, your very eyes say they both can't be an ink pen because they are two different things. And at the end of the day, the only source of truth that we have that is infallible and errant and always trustworthy is right here. This is the only truth that we have, brothers and sisters. And these false teachers and these false prophets, they will come and they will do gymnastic work with the scripture, they will take it out of context, they will spin it around or they are twisting around or they'll take one feet one little uh, phrase out of context and they'll use it as a springboard for another hour and a long conversation. They will misuse, misinterpret, misconstrue, outright corrupt and malign scripture to fit their own desires, to fit their own sinful proclivities, to fit their own narrative and they will come and they will have an idea, have a desire, have a lifestyle and find a verse to support their opinions. Peter says, they're false prophets, and they're false teachers. Well, isn't this good news? Isn't this just encouraging around us? But as I said at the very beginning, the danger is, is that we can be lulled into this idea that all of this is happening on the TV. All of this is happening on the radio. All of this is happening two states away. All of this is happening somewhere else. And the reality is, the saddened, tragic reality is, It's happening in this community. It's happening in this community. False understandings, false teachings, whether intentional or unintentional. You have people in this community, and I would dare say we have to be careful of assuming that it is not already happening in this church where you have people that are being profane in their speech against God. You have people that are being arrogant in their thoughts about God. You have people that are being shameless in their behavior, both in church and out of the church, and you have people that are deceptive in their pursuits. So then what's the good news? So what so what am I supposed to walk out of here with this morning Spence that gives me something to be encouraged about? What is the good news? Well, I put there in your notes just three quick things and we'll be done. The first one is this. God is a big deal. The boys are looking at me wanting to go in the pond. They're like, we don't understand what the big deal is. We don't understand why you won't let to do this. Peter is coming to the church and saying, these false teachers, these false prophets, they are a big deal, be on guard. But I want you to hear from me this morning. God is a big deal. Exodus 20 verse three, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. First Peter chapter one, 16, God says to the pen of the holy or through the pen of Peter through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, be holy for I am holy. We have a big God. We have a righteous God. And when we think about this world today, there's a lot of things that they say are important, are necessary, are things you can pay attention to. And I want you to understand that God is a big deal. Amen. So when it comes to the questions about well, what do I listen to and how do I pursue it and how do I understand this and, and who, who, who gets to decide what is truth and what is right and what is wrong, God is a big deal. But even more so than that, I want you to hear from me this morning that eternity is a big deal. And that's what we're talking about. That is what laying, That is what is laying in the balance is eternity. The question of when you are being deceived and you're being led astray by these false teachers, by these false prophets, they are trying to get you and I to believe and to pursue and to live for the things of Satan. And yet God is saying, don't do it. So then you get to a place like Matthew chapter 25. And Jesus is speaking about this final judgment that is coming and you get down to there towards the very end he's talking about the sheep and the goats. He's talking about the saved and the lost. He's talking about the two different sides, one on his left and one on his right. And he says to them in verse 46 of chapter 25, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternity is a big deal. And every, every eyeball that I see in this room, the Bible says, will spend an eternity somewhere. You will spend... An eternity somewhere. Now, the problem is, is trying to grasp what this eternity looks like. We have no way of understanding what eternity looks like. Some people say it's like trying to get your driver's license changed to the DMV. Some people say it's like sitting through a school board meeting. Some people say it's, it's like going through uh, marital counseling. Some people say that it's sitting in the doctor's office. Some people say that it's sitting in the dentist's chair. Everybody has a different way of describing it. But nobody has any concept of what eternity is. Because we're time-bound people. But eternity, by definition, is forever. And the decisions that you and I make with this life today will determine what we do forever. So, not only is Peter wanting to remind them that God is a big deal, so why they need to be on guard, why they need to be guarding against this stuff, why they need to be aware of this stuff is because God is a big deal, and not just that, because eternity is a big deal. And here's the last one, and we'll come to an end. Because, why do I think this is a why do I think this is good news is because what Peter is saying is in light of all of this, even in spite of all this, we can still choose Christ today. Yes, there are the voices. Yes, there's the influence. Yes, there's the uh, the attempts to try to sway us away. Yes, there's those that are saying, listen to me, I am right. Yes, there are all of those deceptive practices around us. But even in light of the false teaching, even in spite of the, the false teachers today, we can still choose Christ. So it doesn't matter how far you've gotten away. It doesn't matter about how much you've been deceived. It doesn't matter how arrogant you are this morning. It doesn't matter how prideful you are this morning. It doesn't matter about your profane speech. It doesn't matter about your shameless behavior. It doesn't matter about your deceitful pursuits. This morning, you can choose Christ. You can say, I know where I've been, and I know where I am, and I know where God wants me to be today. I wonder this morning, in the eyes of God, and with the audience of the heavenly beings this morning, are you are you making a big deal of Jesus? You bow your heads with me?